Growing a small business has never been easy. So, how can we build our companies and shortcut the learning curve? By getting advice from the people who've done it before. Everything you need to grow your business is right here. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to the conference room. Good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. I'm joined by Lynn Power. Lynn is a 30-year veteran of the advertising industry and the former CEO of J. Walter Thompson in New York, turned entrepreneur. Her advertising career saw her oversee L'Oreal Healthcare, including the launch of Natural Match and work for Preference, Ferrier, Cooler Expert, Excellence and Vive, featuring celebrities such as Eva Longoria, Mili Jovovich, Heather Locklear, Andy McDowell, and Beyonce. She's also launched Gillette Venus, Gillette Skincare for Men, and Duracell Ultra, and led the brand campaign for AOL. She left the corporate world in 2018 to launch Masami Clean Premium Healthcare in February 2020, which she's grown through her knowledge of what it takes to launch a business, brand positioning, and marketing with zero budget. She's seen it all. She's worked on some of the most iconic brands in the world and now is applying her experience to her own brand. And I'm delighted to say she's joined us here on the conference room. Lynn, good afternoon. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. I totally forgot I worked on AOL until you reminded me that brand is like so dead. Thank well, you. <laughs> there we go. I like to bring back an occasional memory or two. Yeah, exactly. Why not? Okay, well, all good stories have a hero, and you're the hero of this story. Ah. So, and all heroes have an origin story. So tell me, Lynn, what is your origin story? How did you get from your humble beginnings to, uh, through to uh, rising to the pinnacle of the advertising profession? Well, okay. I will tell you, for me, it was definitely not a planned journey at all. I grew up in Chicago. I had entrepreneurial parents, which now to me makes sense that I'm an entrepreneur because now I completely like, it's like a fish in water, right? But I actually went to school to to, to do something totally different. I was going to go to law school and then I decided I didn't want to do more school. And I was really, really enamored with going into the FBI and I applied. This was 1989. It was a long, long time ago. (laughs) I'm definitely showing my age. Three, of course. Of course. I was very young. I would have been the youngest FBI agent ever. But nonetheless, I got a form letter back from them saying that basically I was on the list. So that's like a very, you know, and and back in those days, I know it's hard for some of the younger people listening to the show to imagine what it was like when you had to get letters and you had to look for jobs in the newspaper. There was no internet. So I got a letter and it said that I was on the list, but what is the list? Some weird, you know, fictitious list. Is it real? Is it not real? Can I see the list? Do I know who else is on the list? How far am I down the list? I don't know. I had lots of questions. So I just decided, you know what, screw the list. I'm going to do something else (laughs) because I was living at home and, you know, there's that, right? How long do you want to live at home after you graduate college? So I went and saw this headhunter because again, back in the day, I was looking in the newspaper, circling and cutting out ads. And she liked me because I typed really well and I still type incredibly fast. 
And in fact, I type so fast that I've damaged my keyboard. I've worn out the keys on my keyboard. It's kind of insane. But yeah, literally there are holes in my keys. So anyway, she decided to send me on an interview at an ad agency. And she basically just said to me, you're going to love it. They're going to hire you, take the job, and it'll be the best thing that happens. And I just completely trusted her. I went on the interview. They hired me on the spot. I was a living, breathing human who could answer the phone. The job was for the receptionist. And so they hired me. I started the next day, and I really loved it. And I think while on one level it seems like a complete left turn from FBI, In some ways, I've reconciled in my head that it's really about problem solving. Both things are about problem solving. And that's what attracted me, I think, to the FBI and then to advertising. Because for advertising, you're solving different business problems. And what I really enjoyed about it is you're using creativity to solve those problems. And so you get to blend your left and right brains in a way that you can't do with other jobs. And that really resonated with me. Do you think it's also potentially about trying to understand the human experience? Oh, my God, absolutely. You know, one of the best books I've read was called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it's basically how we make decisions. And while you might not think it has anything to do with advertising, it has everything to do with advertising. Because basically what the book tells you is that we are reptilians, meaning we like to use our fast brain all the time because the slow brain is hard. It's hard to think deeply. It's hard to engage that slow brain. And so the fast brain is the cheater. The fast brain looks for shortcuts and the shortcuts are often advertising tricks, you know, an archetype, a song, memory, you know, some type of way to get you to go, oh, I like that. So yeah, it's quite interesting and quite psychological. And actually the book is very interesting when it comes to politics, because it really starts to get into why we as a population elect certain people over other people based on these, the, the fast brain decisions. So anyway, I highly recommend it. It was one of the best books I've read in a long time. You feel, and again, well, people that have uh, listened to this podcast know that I'm very careful not to kind of talk about politics particularly, because I think once you take a political decision, you alienate at least half your audience. Right. Not not kind of commenting on politics, you know, specifically, but do you feel that the types of the people who have been elected in recent and perhaps even more slightly distant, you know, historically elections have benefited more from the types of things that you have either, you know, read in Think Fast and Slow or perhaps have experienced in your advertising career? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that the book kind of proposes is that, you know, we are drawn in by politicians who are good looking and tall. Taller politicians will win over shorter ones. And there's just, there's some interesting things when you look at history of, examples where, oh, okay, that makes sense. And it's people's, you know, I think at the end of the day, we're all flawed, right? We're human, but it's also our desire to believe in something and to, you know, want to buy into something. And so, you know, the right messaging, and again, it's marketing. Think of the last couple of campaigns in the U.S., And the social media impact, that is definitely uh, marketing and advertising and messaging. And some people believe it and some people don't. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just, but it's fascinating. And I think it's only going to get more and more interesting in the future as we get more into people's heads and we can really dissect their behavior. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So how does a five-year-old girl who walks in and decides to be the receptionist, okay, more well, five-year-old, probably kind of 18, 19, whatever, who is put in by a headhunter to be a receptionist in an advertising agency, rise through the ranks in the industry to become, you know, a CEO over the course of a career. How did that happen? Well, I really took to the business. And so at my first job, I started as a receptionist, as I mentioned, but I worked my way up to, you know, account coordinator, assistant account executive, account executive. And I I was on the Pizza Hut account, which, you know, they're still in business, which is kind of amazing because I think throughout the years, it's always been, you know, fixing, trying to solve their problems and fix them. (laughs) I don't know if anyone's ever actually done it but they're still around. And then I moved to New York and I worked on a lot of large agencies on a lot of large accounts. And you mentioned some of them already, but I always felt like I was hitting the ceiling, which happened pretty regularly. I just didn't like to be complacent and stay in a, an environment that was not particularly supportive. So I would leave and I would go find another job. And I definitely counsel a lot of people to try to do that because it's just very easy to get complacent and and stay in a situation that's just, you know, not great. So I would always kind of move on to try to do something else. And I'm just curious and I like new experiences. And I think the pivotal moment was when I went from McCann, where I was working on L'Oreal, which was a terrible client, terrible, terrible client, to Arnold, which was a much smaller agency, but I could have a bigger role. And it was a really great client. And that allowed me to really blossom and kind of act like a leader So sometimes you have to be a big fish in a small pond versus the other way around to get ahead, if that makes sense. Right. So uh, many people, myself included, to be fair, my only real sort of exposure into the advertising industry is from watching sitcoms like, you know, Mad Men or the crazy ones with Robin Williams from a few years back. And did you find that there was that same kind of sort of glass ceiling that you referred to? When you watch Mad Men, albeit that was kind of set sort of 20, 30 years, you know, before you entered the industry, did you find it was that same kind of like very misogynistic, a sort of testosterone driven industry where to be taken seriously as a woman was an almost Herculean exercise? Did you experience it? Maybe not necessarily to the, to the extreme, you know, Don Draper style. Actually, that was not far off. I, I got to be honest, like back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was pretty much like that. And it was, you know, I would walk in a room and men would make jokes. And I was often the only woman in the room, often. In fact, when I went to BBDO, I went and worked on the Tampax tampon account. And guess what? All the clients were men. And so were the leaders at the agency that worked on the business were all men. (laughs) And I was like, seriously? Wow. Okay, this is interesting. So, you know, and I would sit in a meeting and be surrounded by guys talking about tampons and, you know. Which may have been a a very sort of almost 
comic experience because I'm sure most of these guys probably have, I mean, of course, have no experience of actually using them, one would hope. But also, I remember, I think it was in the early or mid-90s, certainly in the UK, where you can probably tell from my accent, that's where I'm from originally. That was the first time they were even allowed to be advertised on TV. That's right. I remember in the UK, I remember a friend of mine went to his mum and said that he wanted to buy some tampons. And she was like, why? He goes, because according to the commercial, and he meant this genuinely, According to the commercials, it means that I can ride a bike faster, I can go on a skateboard much better, I'll be able to jog faster. Oh, These are the things that tampons can make me do. I want to go and buy some, you know? So that I have no idea what it was. Because that, that was what the commercials were. Yeah, that's really funny. I know the commercials definitely had the, you know, the white pants and the horse and the, all that stuff. But yeah. um, <laughs> that was sort of the thing. But like, even then I was like, this is odd. Okay, let's put things in context. Now it would be really weird. You couldn't do that today where you walked in a room and it was all guys talking about Tampa. Like people would just think it. But back then, even then it was odd, even though that was more culturally acceptable because men were in charge, you know? So you had the guys at the table as the bosses. And, you know, I had creative partners who were women, thank God. Although the creative boss was a guy, the head account person was a guy, you know, so, you know, and we used to just kind of chuckle to ourselves that like, oh my God, you know, this is very surreal, but okay. That was just an example of, you know, oh, and the funny thing is I was going to say example of guys don't getting it, but it was really came to, to a head when the business was actually up for review when I, when I went to the agency and I would sit in meetings with the legendary Phil Dusenberry. If people don't know advertising, he was like a Don Draper of advertising. He actually wrote the movie, The Natural with Robert Redford. He was like this icon in the business. And he would sit there and talk about tampons. <laughs> and that to me was kind of like, oh, interesting. Like, wow. So, so how did a relatively young, relatively inexperienced woman in a, I'm guessing, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly middle-aged, overwhelmingly male dominated industry how did that young woman get ahead or get taken seriously yeah well, the glass ceiling? well I also was an extreme introvert and people don't believe that about me because I'm a learned extrovert now but you know much of my early career I was quite extreme like extreme extrovert extreme introvert sorry but I would say that one of the most helpful things was I just had a sense of humor about it and I grew up with two brothers, so I was really comfortable around boys and stupid guy humor. And so when they would make jokes about women and stuff, I didn't take it personally and find it offensive, which maybe I should have because it was, but I just laughed it off and did my work. And what I found what would happen is a lot of my male bosses saw that I was super competent and they would just kind of go, oh, okay, she can just do it. I'll just let her do the work. And they loved it because they didn't have to do it. <laughs> and I loved it because I was learning and growing and they gave me more responsibility. And so, you know, I just kind of got on with it and just didn't let it phase me. I think the challenge for women now is when somebody says something that's clearly out of line, you can't really let it go. You have to call it out. And it's hard for a lot of women to do that. We're back in the day, I could laugh it off and just, you know, just tell the guy, you know, I could say something just as obnoxious back to him <laughs> and it would be fine, right? So it's just a different time. But I do think having just a little bit of 
self-deprecating humor, being able to laugh at yourself, being able to laugh at the situations, and then just getting the work done was always sort of my approach to things. I will say, though, there's a point where that can backfire because I was so good at my job at one point that they didn't want me to move on to another account and it can hold you back. So there were men being promoted over me. I was at an agency for a long time and I wanted to move on to a different account and get a new opportunity and be able to be elevated and whatnot. And the agency leadership, all men basically said to me, oh, we can't, the client likes you too much. And to me, that was like- Well, that's great. Thanks for that. I mean, punished for being successful. Exactly. I was literally like, you're kidding me, right? Like, seriously? So you're not going to let me move and you're going to promote all these other people above me because I'm good at my job? Like, that's awful. So I ended up leaving, obviously. I left that agency because I was like, okay, that's not a formula for success. And, And I found there were quite a few toxic agencies along the way. I loved working at Arnold. That was like a breath of fresh air for me because it was just a much more collaborative, open environment. It was smaller. People got along. Like there was not the backstabbing that happened at the bigger agencies. So that was when I felt like I could be the leader I wanted to be, which was more empathetic. I don't have to pretend I know everything. I don't have to be arrogant. I can just be myself and that's good enough. And I did that for eight years. I really loved it. So then in 2018, you moved on from J. Walter Thompson and started Masami. Okay. Am I, yep. Forgive me. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Masami? It's actually Masami, but Masami. you wouldn't know that. And everyone pronounces it that way. But the reason we say Masami is because it's named after my co-founder's husband, Masa. Oh, well, there you go. So yeah. are you co-founded Masami. And we'll talk maybe a little later or perhaps on another episode. Um, about that transition from being a corporate, a a cog in a corporate machine, albeit a very big cog, okay, to then starting your own machine. We'll talk about that uh, maybe a little later on on a different episode. But I'm keen to understand the core lessons that you took from your advertising that really applied to being able to grow um, a startup. Okay. So what would you say were the key things that, that you had to learn quickly where you didn't have this enormous corporate machine behind you and you were having to really start everything off with a almost or actual zero budget? Yeah, no, an actual zero budget is right. So, I mean, the good news is I had been a practitioner of the business, so I wasn't always in management. So I really liked that part of the business. I liked building brands. So it was very easy for me to go back and connect with that and do that again. And I would say the first thing, you know, that I took from my advertising world was the importance of really understanding the brand positioning, the brand values, and nailing that down early. Because when I was doing some consulting, I would work with startups and they did not do that. (laughs) They would focus on the product and they would not think about the brand. And then, you know, they're a year or two into their launch and it's a dog's breakfast. Why do you think that is? As in, why is positioning brand brand positioning brand value is so important? Well, I think because it's the glue, and I don't think if you don't have that marketing perspective, I think if you're like an engineer who's built a great product, you're enamored with your product. You don't understand that it's more than the product. It's the promise. It's the values. It's the proposition. It's where it sits in a consumer's mind. It's the role it plays in their life. You know, so. When you actually start to answer those questions, 
it makes your life a lot easier down the road because things like what products are you going to launch next? Well, they roll off the tongue because once you have your values and your proposition, you know exactly what you should be doing next. And that's been for us, like our North star and our guiding light is really understanding that. And then this other thing I brought from the advertising world is really knowing that there are an increasingly huge number of specialties in the business, right? Like I can't possibly be an expert in Instagram ads and the algorithm for Amazon and SEO and all the the sort of rabbit holes you can go down in digital, but they're so important for your business. And so you really need to figure out what are the capabilities you need, depending on what type of business you're building. If you're building an e-commerce business like I am, you need those capabilities. So you need to find people that go into those rabbit holes very deep because I don't. I'm like the kind of person who is a generalist and I know just enough to be dangerous and ask the right questions, but I don't go deep, deep, deep into like SEO, you know, keyword, you know, strategy. And so when you're starting a business, you know, you have to think about, okay, what are those roles on the team? What are the capabilities? And, and, How can I find those people and get those capabilities? And, you know, you mentioned a zero budget. And in our case, what we ended up doing is building a team that was all equity based. So everybody has a little stake in the company, but nobody gets paid a salary. And the beauty of that is that, well, first of all, they're all my friends. So I work with people that I love and that makes it easier. But secondly, they're all super motivated to see the company succeed because the better the company does, the more their shares are worth, you know, the more the stake that they have is is worth. I don't hear a lot of founders doing it and I don't really know why. I know people get nervous about giving up equity, but at the same time, you need the capabilities. And when you're young and you're starting out like the cash flow can really be a detriment and we need to our cash flow to go into product innovation and R&D not in operations if that makes sense yeah no absolutely let's talk about building a brand okay so to me given the fact that I know very little about brand building I would have thought that building a brand if someone said to me right okay you know, Simon, let's take one of your companies and let's really build the brand. I'd be thinking, right, okay, I need to have a huge advertising budget. I need to have loads of Instagram ads, loads of Facebook ads. I need to be, you know, all over where my, you know, I may know who my ideal customer is, but I need to be right in their face. And I'm going to have to find a guy or a company or a friend or whatever, and just have them throw loads of money at Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest and whatever else, right? Is that how you build a brand? Or would you say, actually, Simon, here's how to do it? Well, the beauty of it is that today, yes, you could do that if you wanted to. But the ROI on those tactics has become more and more challenging, which is why DTC is starting to fall a little bit out of favor, direct-to-consumer brands, because they're harder to make a profit when your your cost per acquisition is, you know, $80 or $100, you know, it's crazy. But what I would say is there's still a lot of things you can do that cost almost nothing or literally nothing. And one is what we're doing right now, podcasts, you know, being able to talk about the brand and the story in a way that also tells a, a bit of a deeper story and not just, you know, the surface. So I really enjoy that because I feel like, you know, people want to know kind of the the look, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz, the peek behind the curtain, you know, people want to see a little bit of what goes on. 
And I've always been a person who's pretty open about all that. So I'm happy to share. But I think, you know, there are ways to leverage social. There are also great opportunities to partner with other brands. And we've been doing a lot of that. So writing blog posts, creating content, doing live streams, doing giveaways, doing gift with purchases. Like there's all these things you can do that really cost almost nothing. And so you don't have to be completely reliant on the big, bad Facebook. You can figure out ways around it. And by the way, Pinterest is actually a great channel. It's very, very efficient financially to to do Pinterest ads, and it drives a lot of traffic. So I think you can be scrappy. There are also a lot of interesting platforms now that, that we're on that don't cost anything to be on whether it's Ziggy, which is a cool influencer affiliate platform, or TalkShop Live, which is a live streaming platform, or Shop Lit Live, which is now my new favorite obsession, which is an app for live streaming. Those are things that brands can do that don't cost anything. And think about it, back in the day, getting you know a half an hour of quote unquote airtime would, would cost a fortune. But now we can go into Amazon Live and stream to our heart's content for free. So, you know, that's kind of the beauty of the digital age. Now, will anyone see it? (laughs) That's the question, right? But I think if your content is interesting and, you know, we learn along the way and you're willing to evolve and you kind of have to plant a lot of seeds is the way I think about it because you don't know which ones are going to sprout. So so do do you sort of favor the, I'm not going to say scattergun, but go as broad and as wide as possible, be it try and target as much as possible, but as broad and as wide as possible in your efforts and then see what the market kind of jumps onto and then kind of focus on that. Yes, but I will caveat what you're saying with, which is we go as wide as possible within our strategy. Like I don't want to be a mass brand. So I'm not looking to get in a mass retail and to go wide that way. But as far as trying a lot of different tactics and experimenting, absolutely. Because you just don't know. You don't know what's going to stick. You know, there's so many interesting new things happening with technology, with mobile, with VR, with AR, with AI, with, you know. <laughs> so you, you do I love have- how efficient we've become from going from three-letter acronyms to two-letter acronyms. Maybe they'll be one letter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it'll be one letter pretty soon. But yeah. <laughs> But that's kind of fun. And, you know, being sort of one of the first brands on some of these platforms is also pretty cool because we get to see in the early days, it's almost like when email and and the internet launched and you're one of the early, you know, brands on there. Now we feel, it feels a little bit like that with some of these platforms where they're figuring it out and trying to see what works and we're kind of in there with them. But my attitude is, You know, if it's just a little amount of my time and no money, I definitely want to learn and try because like I said, you don't know what things are going to stick and it's super valuable to be able to be part of some of these platforms and get that experience of almost looking at it through the consumer's eyes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And are there any kind of gaffes or mistakes do you think that you've met where over the last sort of couple of years since um, launching Massimo that you could turn and go, damn, if I'd only turned left instead of turning right, you know, it was a flip coin and I I called it wrong. Are there any that you feel, you know, if you'd gone back again, you'd have maybe done something slightly differently? Yeah, of course. There's lots of those. But I think I make very fast decisions and I don't 
belabor them. I really don't. I, I move on. They're learning and I do something different. But I spent a fair amount of money on product sampling last year through subscription boxes. I probably sent out over 2000 samples and our samples are generous. They're not little, little satchels. They're, they're actually like good, generous samples and expensive. And it was very hard to see the return on that. Like I just didn't see an ROI come through that. And so now I'm much tougher about sampling because I just didn't see it pay off for us. So now when somebody asks me for products, I want to know, is there a path to conversion? You know, what does that look like? Just trying to be a bit more strategic. And in fact, we just signed on with a brand called Mira Beauty. They're an e-commerce site and they do, basically they're e-commerce that's led by sampling and it's an AI data powered site. So they use sampling to learn about their customers and to be able to provide us with data around how to target better what are our customers' preferences, behaviors, what other brands do they like, et cetera, because that's super valuable knowledge because otherwise you're just shooting in the dark, you know? It's like you're just like struggling to just figure it out because that's the, the reality is you, you might have a hypothesis over who your customers are, and we certainly did when we launched. Like I assumed it would be the 30-something, well, it's called the Henry's, high earners, not rich yet. That's what Henry stands for. Yeah. Like the, then they're basically like 30 somethings. So they don't have kids yet necessarily. So they have discretionary income. They live in an urban setting. They're beauty explorers. They like to indulge in themselves. Like th that seems like a logical target for a premium hair care brand. Right. But what I'm finding is that the, the people that really love us are actually a couple different groups, people that have really dry, really frizzy, really curly, really coarse hair because they have a problem or women that are a bit older who have thinning hair and colored hair and also have a problem or women who are pregnant and need to switch brands because they're looking for a clean product. And then finally men Men are a big target for us. They're like 40% of our customers. And we well, made you our- don't get, You don't get glowing locks like this without putting some real application to it. I mean, you know. All right, you're going to have to put a picture in when you, you know, <laughs> this episode so people can see. But yes, you're correct. And what I, what I didn't appreciate is, I mean, we made our products to be gender neutral on purpose because I feel like the, today's world is gender fluid. And you, if you're going to be inclusive, you kind of have to be that way. But, but men have really gravitated to the products and we don't target them. So they find us somehow. I don't know how. Maybe through the podcast. Maybe they'll look at you as a case study for the brand. I don't know. Wow, Testimonial. That's, that's really interesting. You know, the fact that how you, I guess, how you stumble upon a market or you're aiming for, or you think you're aiming for a market, but there are other markets that naturally find you. And that kind that's of process right. of elimination, that, that's really, really fascinating. But the tricky thing is you've got to identify those markets. Like you can't still be myopic about thinking that your target is the Henry's if it's not, you know, you have to sort of recognize along the way that, oh, maybe it's these other people and then be able to shift and evolve and, you know, evolve not just your targeting, but your messaging and your imagery and whatnot. And that's tricky. You know, that does take a little bit of like self-reflection. That's great. That's great. Lynn, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, particularly about 
your transition from being uh, a CEO to being a, an entrepreneur. But we've kind of run out of time on this podcast. But would you care to join us again on another episode to talk about that? Of course, that would be fun. That'd be fantastic. Okay, so... Uh, you're not tired of hearing me talk by now? <laughs> Absolutely no. I'm, I'm just getting started. I really am. But, but in the meantime, before we meet again, what's next for, for Lynn? What's next for Masami? Well, we are having so much fun. I have to tell you, I would never go back to advertising. It, it is just like at this point in my life, I'm really enjoying what we're doing. And we have a lot of ambition and aspiration for Masami. We are launching a large size ceramic refillable bottle with refill pouches next month, which I'm super excited about. And that's beautiful, by the way. Somebody today sent me a picture of it saying this is badass, which I appreciate because it is. It looks really beautiful. Badass in a good way. But yeah, so we're doing that and we have a bunch of products in the pipeline that, you know, it's going to take us a while to work through and get out in the market. But I have so much on my plate right now and I'm enjoying it that I'm busy. I've got the next couple of years covered and we just want to make products that are good for you and good for the environment and work really well. That's great. And so if people want to find out more about you or about Masami, where can they go? So I'm easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me, just search my name and Masami. You can find me personally at Lynn Powered on pretty much every social channel. And for Masami, we are at lovemasami.com or at Love Masami Hair is our social handle on Instagram, TikTok, believe it or not, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Pinterest. That's great. Twitter. I forgot Twitter. Yes, Twitter. And too. of course, Twitter. Okay, that's great. Lynn Power, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you. it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I am going to take you up on your offer, and we will certainly be talking again. Lynn Power, thank you very much indeed. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Coming up next week on The Conference Room, I'll be talking to entrepreneur and best-selling author, Jay Haleem Washington. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com, where you can find all the show notes, plus links to the resources mentioned during the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this, make sure you subscribe so that you're always the first to know when each episode is released. Also, please take the time to review the podcast so the more people who want to grow their businesses can find us. To talk about this or any other podcast, or in fact, anything business-related whatsoever, find me on Twitter, at Simon Lader, or you can find me by searching for Simon Lader or Silesia Academy on Facebook or on LinkedIn. I'm always open to a conversation. Thanks for listening to The Conference Room. Until next time, keep talking.